Over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about Christ's encounters, the called, the sinners, religious, rich. I've really enjoyed it because it's talking about relationships. And, uh, you know, we've looked where our Lord's followers have moved from, you know, say we're on a boat, we're from friendships to relationships to discipleships. I really appreciate last week Pastor Scott preparing part of the way because we're kind of the hybrids. Last week he was talking, well, go back there in a second. Here, we're too fast. There we go. Uh, last week he was talking about the broken, but also the religious were involved. This week I'm going to be talking about the sinners, but also the religious are involved. So we had kind of hybrid. So we helped set the stage for that. You know, in week one, really loved it. We had phrases like come and see, then go and bring. Those were some of the easiest relationships to develop because they're prime, they're ripe fruit. I watched a a video a while back uh, about someone with an apple farm. And when the apples were ready, all they had to do was shake the branch and all the apples fell. Those were the easy fruit. Uh, Also, you know, we see in the first week where Jesus sees beyond what we are and what we'll become. So today, I'm I'm not a real, uh, I do not come with a lot of original things. Uh, So there's things for those of you that preached in the past, if you preached any time in the last two years, some of your quotes might be in here today. They're so good that it needs to be repeated again. And so that's where we're going. So before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Our kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for letting me be up here this morning. You've showed me your word. You've showed me what men have thought about this passage. Bring your truth to light this morning. Let it be clear and evident. Relationships are so important to you. Let them be important to us as we continue to grow them. Now, one of my coaches um, talks about relationships. And so when we look at those cans, you know, we got these cans sitting on either side. And a lot of times when relationships start, they're way, way, way apart, which reminds me of a story. Uh, There was a young man that was out on an outing, and he was the substitute date for someone else because the lady's uh, fiancé couldn't make it, so he said, oh, yeah, I'll volunteer, I'll go. It's great. It's a free lunch. Uh, there's no commitment. I don't have to worry about anything. Uh, so, you know, the young man took it up. Well, while on that little outing, um, he and this young lady were swinging on a tire swing and having a good time, probably acting like idiots. Uh, but they were enjoying it. Ran. There's no commitment. But, this, you know, uh, a little bit later, another young lady and her date walked up and wanted to use the tire swing. Now, did the first couple give it up? No. They were having too much fun. They didn't see anybody else. So if you looked at it, the young man and the other lady showed up, their relationship was way, way far apart. Uh, in fact, I think uh, the way I heard it, she thought he was a little bit goofy and that also he was very immature. Okay. Roll forward 18 months. That relationship never changed. Number one, he was oblivious. He didn't even realize she existed. Number two, she probably could care less about somebody who's immature and goofy. But roll forward 18 months. Young man shows up at a, shows up at a, 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 camp, a class. And he was told, you know, and every time you go to a class... And you don't know anybody else in the room. You put your books right next to you. So that way, when a good-looking girl shows up, you pull the books up, and maybe she'll sit by you. Maybe. So, you know, uh, so it happens. 
And sure enough, a real cute looking girl walks in the, the room. The young man grabs the books real quick and she comes his way. But does she sit next to him? No, she sits a seat over. All the luck. But then roll forward another 18 months. As they meet, she asks him out. He asks her out. And slowly the relationship, sort of like on there, the relationship starts getting a little bit closer. Then, you know, there's another, gets a little bit closer. And then, of course, you know, as old relationships go, every now and then, someone does something stupid, gets over here. But eventually, and I like this, you know, eventually there's this aha moment, they get married. Relationships were drawn together. As we talk today, we're going to talk about relationships. You know, when we look at relationships with us and Christ and us and God, if there's distance, it's not because God moved, it's because we moved. The good news about that, on Thursday, that couple will be married for 38 years. And uh, I'm glad I married her. And I'm glad she doesn't think I'm still goofy. Well, some days. <laughs> okay, today we're going to look at some relationships. We get to look at the messy relationships. Uh, you know, and I called it, you know, I looked at the title. I've been looking at this for several weeks. And I didn't like focusing necessarily on the adulterous woman. I like to call it the missing men. Because as we go through the story, there was a lot of stuff that was missing. And there are things that uh, do. So we're going to look at some messed up relationships. We're going to look at relationships that possibly never moved closer to Christ. We don't know. It doesn't say. And you know, we, can only spec- we can only speculate on what the final result was going to be. So the final result is going to be us asking ourselves, what do we want the final result to be? Turn your Bibles. We're going to be in John 8 today, but I'm going to start with a little background in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, Jesus appeared at a festival in Jerusalem. He taught openly. During the daytime, he could do that. Uh, the rulers wanted to, if you look through John 7, the, mur- the rulers wanted to murder him. They, were, they hated him that bad. But they were afraid to oppose him in public, and he preached publicly. In the middle of the chapter, after being stung by criticism, the rulers went to the place that they gave orders for Jesus to be arrested. Of course, we knew it wasn't his time yet. Time had not yet come. Jesus had asked the crowds, come to me and drink. Sort of like he asked some of the disciples, come, follow me. He told them, come, drink. He's the living water. The guards were sent to arrest him. They couldn't arrest him, saying, no one has ever spoke the way excuse me, the way this man does. So when we get to the next verse here, we start, as we start the chapter, uh, actually we'll start at uh, John 7, 53, and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So as we see this, the rulers go home and sulk. They had a plan. They were scheming. Uh, they didn't get what they wanted because the guards they sent to do that wouldn't arrest him. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why? Commentators had a lot of different reasons. They thought, well, maybe nobody wanted to dare have Jesus in their home and risk the thought of someone coming and attacking him in the middle of the night. So Jesus walks a couple miles and possibly sleeps, possibly prays all night, 
in the Mount of Olives. Again, Mount of Olives was a place of comfort for him. He communed with his father there multiple times. Now, the other thing I like, though, here, early in the morning. Now, when Jesus went to Mount of Olives, now early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Okay, here's some examples of Christ. Early in the morning, he gets up. He did it the day before. Now, again, he comes and he starts teaching them. We should be teachers and part of the example. I was in a, an event a couple months ago, and the theme, uh, this, the mantra of this group was to educate, excite, and empower. So, you know, he sat down and taught them. Why? He was all about, he was all about making disciples. Second part, excite. You know, as we talked week one, come and see, then go and bring. He wanted to get people excited about his message, excited about the relationship. He didn't want it sitting on opposite ends of the stage. He wanted it right next to him. And the last part, empower. Now, I love, I love this, and I can't, I think it was Chris uh, that said, you know, or put it up, you know, Jesus is going to use a person nobody else wants to reach people no one else is reaching. Every one of us in this room is different. Each one of us has skill sets that are different. And Jesus used each, of us, each one of us in a different manner. I can't do some of the jobs you guys do. You guys can't do some of the jobs I do. Some of us can do multiple tasks, and we're called to do multiple tasks. But he's going to use people to confound the mighty. We ver- move on down to verses 3 through 5. And, you know, his, it, you know, Parents are good for this, moms especially. You ever had the gotcha question? The question that there is absolutely zero right answer because you're in trouble no matter what. You can't answer it either way. Well, this is kind of the gotcha question part. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought him to him a woman caught in adultery. Now, on their part, this is very rude. He is sitting in the temple, in a seat of authority. He's got people all the way around. He's teaching them, and they bust in, and they drag this woman in front of him. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Okay, the religious leaders want to destroy his influence, force him into some sort of situation where he'd either have to directly violate the law of Moses or maybe insist on an unpopular penalty that was seldom enforced. It's kind of funny. They might have even gone back to John chapter 7. If you go back to John seven nineteen, you know, when he had this thing, he, he, he talks to him, he goes, uh, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is, him, is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So he, I don't want to say he antagonized, but maybe he primed the pump here. So they bring here, and it's the next thing. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? The gotcha question. The gotcha question. Now if you go back, there's two places in the law that is mentioned. There's one in Leviticus. There's one in Deuteronomy 22. Um, And you know, going through some of the commentaries, they, they talk about who this adulterous woman is. But it, it's kind of interesting. If you go back through then, according to Matthew Henry, there were three people that could be stoned, specifically be stoned for adultery. 
One was someone, a woman that was engaged, not yet married. A woman that uh, was not married or a priest's daughter. I don't know how that got in there, but that was one of the three. Everybody else, especially in Leviticus, says if you commit adultery, you're put to death to get it out of the midst. But in Deuteronomy, they, those are the three things where they said that. So the, the scribes and the Pharisees were setting this up. They had probably been primed in the previous week by what he said, but they came, they came in here. They didn't care about the woman. The woman, as far as they were concerned, had no value to them. No value. But they had a special vindictiveness against her. Why? I don't know. Maybe she'd offended one of them. Maybe she'd caused trouble for one of them. But, you know, the thing is this, in their vindictiveness, they made it public. They didn't have to drag her in front of Jesus and all the people he was teaching. They could have left her in a holding cell someplace <clears throat> and brought the case to him. Uh, but they didn't. Brought. The word brought up in there kind of brings the, the thing of being uh, shame-filled, humiliating circumstances, held against her will by, by these people, a prisoner of the religious police involved with a man that was not her husband. The other word, and they're caught, in this, kind of in the perfect tense, indicating a meeting like she was taken with her shame upon her. Okay, missing man number one. In the law, you know, this is, this is not a sin. It's a private sin, but it's not a sin committed alone. Where's the man? Where is the man? They, in many ways, they had set up a case. They'd given an easy pitch. They thought they were going to hit a home run out of the park. And Jesus tags them at home plate because they left out a detail. The standard of evidence for this crime was very, very high. High level. Had had a lot of proof. Two witnesses had to be in perfect agreement. They had to witness it while the sin was being committed. Conditions so stringent that it could only be met on very rare occasions. As one commentator put it, under these, conti- under these conditions, obtaining the evidence would almost be impossible if it was not a setup. Many people believe the woman was set up. So from the, the Pharisees' perspective, they thought they had a, a good case. They could trap Christ. They could, they could make him unpopular with the people. They could change this tide, get the momentum going the other direction. What does Jesus do? As we go to the next side, it says, and they said this, testing him, that they might have something which to accuse him. But Jesus, okay, he was already sitting down, but Jesus stooped down. He starts doing something, writing on the ground. There's a lot of speculation of what he was writing. But think about it. While they did not value her, Jesus valued her individually. And at that point in time, I think he was focused solely on her. The accusations were there. She didn't deny the accusations. She, says it was, she didn't say it wasn't me. She, she was condemned. She condemned her in many ways herself. But what was Jesus thinking at that point in time? I know we can't know the mind of God. But what was Jesus thinking? Maybe he was thinking of the hardness of the men's hearts. 
You know, but uh, part of me doesn't exactly see that way. I like, I, I like the, the series, The Chosen. I like the guy that portray, portrays Jesus in that thing. He's a very lighthearted. I mean, Jesus has got to be a very friendly, approachable person. Otherwise, the children wouldn't want to come to him. You know, you don't see someone that's gruff and hateful have children all over their lap. You know, there, there's some kind of, so I'm thinking there. So I don't think he was focusing necessarily on the men's hearts at that point in time. Maybe he thought back to his own mother. Joseph was worried when she comes home expecting a child and they were betrothed. Was he worried about her getting stoned? Maybe he's thinking about what his mother had to go through in God's plan. Don't know. Could be a thought that went, went there. Another one. Maybe he was thinking adultery is not a one-person sin. Maybe, you know, maybe he starts thinking about other men. As you, as you looked out over the audience, maybe he was thinking, hey, there's Noah. Boy, Noah, you're going to have a rough life, and I'm going to have to teach you how to build a boat, save the world. Maybe he was looking at Joseph. Well, Joseph, I'm going to show you some things while you're young, but you're going to be a little bit arrogant. I'm going to have to knock some rough edges off you. You're going to have to sit in prison for a while, but you'll save the world. Maybe he's looking at Gideon and saying, oh, young man, you're such a coward. I'm going to show you my power in ways that befuddles the rest of man. Daniel. Daniel, okay, life's going to be a little rough. You're going to be captured. You're going to be taken to another country, but I'm going to raise you up to greatness. Maybe he was looking at the man there in that audience and seeing one or two of them, saying, oh, wow, down the road, you're going to do great things for me. You're going to be one of my disciples. Not yet. You're not quite ready yet, but maybe you will. I don't know. But that's when I'm thinking about situations, and I don't want to read things in the Scripture, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. He's looking for what he can, who that person's going to change, who that person, what that person's going to do great things for him. Grace salvages rather than destroys. So he's looking at this thing. He's not, you know, the moral police at that point in time had passed judgment. They were going to destroy her. His grace and morality of Christ looked past her sin at that point in time and said, I'm going to give you a way to recover. You know, he, when he knelt down, he said he stooped down, he was taking a position of humility maybe identifying with her a little bit to maybe ease her shame. He's already seated. The, the Pharisees and scribes were standing around him, making a big deal about it. He didn't show any reaction of anger. He didn't show any outrage. He paused and stooped down. He matched their rudeness with a deliberate preoccupation in equal portions, balancing. Was he trying to diffuse the situation a little bit? Maybe. The heart of the wise studies an answer. I don't think Christ really had to study real hard. He knew all that. But in our thing, sometimes we need to stop before we answer when we have that gotcha question. We want to make sure that we think twice, answer once. What did Christ write? A lot of speculation. And, I, you know, Growing up is always, oh, he wrote the names of the people and their sins. Maybe that could be. Uh, the word that's translated there could mean draw. Some people think all he did was doodled. You know, 
some thinks he wrote out a passage like Exodus 23.1. Do you not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness? Possible. Some things, you know, like I mentioned earlier, some people thought that uh, he wrote the names of the accused. Others thought he wrote the sins of the accusers. I, I like this other one that came up as I was doing some of my studies. Some thinks he was following the Roman judicial code and system and wrote out the sentence that he was going to say before he said it. In that time period, a lot of times they, before the sentence was given, it was all written out. Maybe that's what happened. Uh, one person said the Greek word here means to write down a record against someone. Very possible that that's what he did. Okay, we had got you question number one. Now, how about got you question number two? When you look here and uh, so, you know, when he, you know, he ignored them, he let them go about their rants and raves. And so we go to the next verse. So when they continued asking, he raised himself up. I'm, I, part of me has to think about some of these TV dramas, you know, a lawyer getting up and the witness or whatever is ignoring him and you know, get in their face and all this. But, you know, here he stands up to speak to him. He gets eye to eye. But again, he wasn't angry. He wasn't belligerent. But he stands up, at, again, authority. And he raises himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone first at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. They were probably pretty annoyed that he was ignoring them. And they, ha, ah, we got him. He's ignoring. He can't figure out how to get the, out of this one. Probably asking the question, maybe again, a little bit louder. Maybe playing to the audience. This woman was in adultery. He needs to do something about it. But he ignored him. But he stands, and most likely at this point in time, remember it took two witnesses, so most likely those two witnesses were there in the crowd. And he probably looked at the ones who brought the charge directly in the eye. And instead of passing judgment on the woman, he turned the tables and he passed a sentence on his accusers. I, I like the way one person phrased this, and I wouldn't have, this, so it's not original to me, I wouldn't have come up with it. In many ways, what he said is, okay, we may execute her. She sinned. Yeah, she's in the wrong, but we've got to do it correctly, guys. One of the two witnesses must begin the execution. So who among you is the one who witnessed the crime? And why did you only bring the woman to me? He didn't say that, but in essence, he did. It wasn't, that the, it wasn't that all the men there had not sinned once or twice before. You know, all of sin comes short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So it wasn't that, you know, these men had not sinned once or twice before and had no right to be concerned about the woman's sin. But where he flipped the question around to them, it's that they had orchestrated and plotted her sin. They actually kind of plotted and sinned, helped her sin you know, plotted the sin for her. They plotted her shame. They used her as a weapon against Jesus. In this instance, in this instance, they had the greater sin. They had the greater guilt. 
like this you know, and so he stooped down and he wrote on the ground again. Why did he stoop back down again? Maybe to diffuse the situation again. Instead of staring them in the eye and accusing, maybe inflaming the situation, he turns back, gets down, and starts writing again. He gets down on her level to help relieve some of her shame. He ignores them. Next slide we get here and says, then those who heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. I have to admit, all my life I've probably been anti-Pharisee. Scribes and the Pharisees always get a bad rap. You know, they're they're always the ones that seem to be over the top. Maybe, you know, in our daytime, maybe they're the, the far left or the super far right. And in this case here, Jesus might be the progressive, if you think about it, because he's changing the way of thinking. But at this point in time, I've got I've to admit, you know, this verse speaks well of the Pharisees. They made the right choice. They, 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 they examined themselves. Their conscience wasn't dead. It wasn't seared. It wasn't, uh, you know, they, they realized, wait a minute here. This man, again, speaks truth. Remember the guard said, no man speaks like this. We can't do this. And so the Pharisees look at that. They now were more aware of their own sin than that of the woman's. I like the idea that it was uh, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Why? I don't know. Maybe as we get older, we realize that some sins don't matter as much. Some, we realize that um, you know, we don't have the same sin problems we had. You know, my sins of the 20s were a whole lot different than my sins of the 30s. My habitual sins of the 40s were different than the ones of the 50s. Um, you know, we have to look at that. As we look at even the other part of that, you know, just like even uh, King David and Nathan the prophet, Jesus exposed a common sin, a desire to punish others, punish the sins of others while ignoring our own. I like that. The call to follow Jesus is always a call to repent. Again, repeating another thing that we've learned over the last several weeks. The call to Jesus is always a call to repent. He wants to change us. He wants us to mold us into his image. We're going to our next, next verse. We see, and when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one, you know, he gets up, turns around, missing men number two, except they're all now missing. Not just the missing accused, but now the missing accusers. Jesus, when Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? He might not have said it that way, but that's the way I would have said it. Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I contem- condemn you. Go and sin no more. Everything that Jesus did was righteous. Everything he did was designed to promote Righteousness. And Jesus affirmed the law's penalty for sin, but he demanded sinlessness from anyone who's going to execute it. 
wiped out everybody on the earth but one person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus withheld the penalty that she might go and sin no more. I like some of the translations said, you know, I don't condemn you. Go stop sinning. It's easy as that. Stop sinning. Paul, though, Paul knew that we can't can't live a sinless perfection life. He knows that we have troubles and that, uh, you know, he had to die daily. Got to go to the throne of grace every day. I have a a friend uh, out of Knoxville. I I look at him as one of my Barnabases. We challenge each other. And from time, you know, we don't talk every day, every week, but we talk about once a month, every other month. And as we were talking about this, I told him, I said, yeah, this Sunday I'm going to be talking about the adulterous woman. He said, that would be interesting. I said, yeah, you ought to come down and listen. We got talking a little bit, and a topic came up about some protections. And I said something, you know, every now and then when somebody will write a check, there's also someone else looking and verifying, is that really that signature? Is that a valid transaction? He goes, oh, Doug, that's so good. I said, what do you mean? He goes, we need to have a sin ATM machine. And I said, wait a minute here. Why are you saying that? He goes, because, you know, some days I take too much out of my ATM and I need somebody to say, stop, you're over your limit. I said, oh, that's good. He goes, I also need somebody to watch and say, hey, wait a minute. Do you really want to do that? Is that really you? Did you really want to be the one that is failing at this point in time? When we... When we go to the next one, we see, you know, this woman had a sinful habit. Jesus told her to stop and not return. God's going to take us just as you are, but he's not going to let you stay that way. He doesn't take you more than you can handle at any one single time. You know, I always like life. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. There's no way you can swallow the whole thing at once. She needed hope because the consequences of her sin was severe. She's probably, because of this, because they made it so public, she's probably going to be shunned by her community. Good chance of that. Um, with, the, with the way it's made out, she's probably going to be rejected by her future husband. Most likely, she, even though she might have had this habit of sinning, most likely she was engaged to be married, maybe even end up divorced. As one person put it, Jesus' motive was to assure her of forgiveness and grant her a passport to new life and a better life. Yeah, there's a song, I played it for my wife this morning, called Scars. Um, I'm not going to sing it for you. It's okay. And even next week, I think we need to make uh, Pastor Chris sing Jesus or Zacchaeus. But, you know, I look at my hands, and I can see scars on my hands. There's one over here where my brother bit me when we were young. You can still see the teeth marks. Um, I can see one here where I was trying to chop wood in Pennsylvania and about cut my finger off. I can see one here where I was helping my son-in-law fix his car, and now it looks sort of like a giraffe. You know, scars have a story. But think of the most important scars ever. Christ's hands, his feet, the sword in his side. They tell a story. They tell a story of forgiveness and redemption. In here, he didn't have the scars yet, but he was already granting her that passport to a new life. So 
What are the three asks of Christ? The first one, to the sinner. Stop sinning. Sounds easy. Sounds simple. But all of us in this room know how hard it is to stop sinning. I doubt any of us get through a day. You know, she was a sinner, condemned unclean. Next one, if you're religious, reevaluate. A couple weeks ago, we had communion. Every time you hit communion, you're supposed to examine yourself. Make sure you don't have anything sitting there, hiding there, that's going to stop you from communing with Christ. So if you're the religious, hopefully you've already stopped your sin habits. You've got to take care of them on a daily basis. Take out the trash, in one way of putting it. But reevaluate. The next one, to the disciple. We want you to duplicate. The best way to learn something, going clear back to the front, the best way to learn something is to teach it. My wife has told me many times, you're a better person when you teach because I'm learning to teach it. You got to learn what's right. You got to be what's right to really teach it effectively. So duplicate. Find someone else because I'm not going to be around forever. Leon's not going to be around forever. Chris is not going to be around forever. Who's going to take our place next time around. Duplicate. So as we think about those things, today, we all know we're sinners. If you're a sinner, let's stop sinning. If we're religious, but really quite haven't got it down right, like the Pharisees, let's reevaluate. Don't let your conscience get seared by moral superiority. Make disciples. You know, a lot of times my ask is that, Lord, give me one person, one interaction a day that maybe I can make a difference in someone else's life. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I'm too blind, too oblivious to see it. And other times it's like, you know, the, uh, the disciples of the fish, there's more than I can handle. But God gives us the grace to take us one step at a time. Greatest story ever told was through Christ's scars. He puts our scars in the past. He tells us to start over with a new life. Let's close a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that you gave. Yes, the story was on the adulterous woman. Yes, she sinned. Yes, she condemned herself. She didn't need you to condemn her. Your Father didn't send you to condemn the world, but to save the sinners, save the lost. You recognize that she had self-condemned herself and gave her a way out. You recognize you helped the Pharisees see their wrong and let them condemn themselves also to hopefully change their ways. We don't know the end of the story. We don't know if any of them became followers of you, and even made a difference. But we know you left the story here for us to make the decision that we can make a difference and we can tell your story. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the close encounters you have with us. Help us to always draw closer to you, build our relationship with you, 
And I thank you that you don't move. Draw me near. In your precious name, amen.